0: Well, good morning. It's good to be uh, with you all again. It has been a a treasure and a joy uh, getting to know you as a congregation these last few months, coming in occasionally as a guest uh, preacher. And I just asked Steve, I said, is this going to be the last then of the psalm series? He said, I I think so, Um, which is interesting. I would not have picked this psalm, I don't think, if it was going to be the last of the series, but the Lord did. And uh, we we shall dive in accordingly. But before I read it, and by the way, let me just say I, I give thanks to the Lord with you for His, his timing and connecting uh, your church with, with Tim Kirk and Tim with you, and you'll certainly have uh, my prayers for the Lord's blessing on His ministry here, and, and you're walking together uh, for the months ahead. So like we often say, the Lord is never one minute late, one minute early. He is always right on time, and we trust that is so here as well. Um, In this series on the psalms that began in January, you've looked at different genres of psalms. Some psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, uh, royal psalms. I don't know if you looked at maybe some of the wisdom psalms. I know you've looked at least two or three uh, psalms of lament. And this morning we're going to look at one called an imprecatory psalm, or what's really technically here in Psalm 137, an imprecatory lament and imprecatory comes from, from the verb imprecate, which means to, to call judgment upon. It's the opposite of a benediction, which is a, a good word upon someone. It's a, it's a malediction. It's, it's, it's calling a curse or a judgment upon uh, an enemy, a foe, or, or something, in opposition. And that's what we have in, in Psalm 137. And I will read it for us, and then we'll pray and dive in together. Hear the word of God. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth. saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we ask, or I ask for your help to take this passage of your holy word and to draw out its meaning in connection with all of your word, with the whole counsel of God. And we pray that all of us would bring to this passage of Scripture our whole minds and our whole hearts, our whole selves, that we might be transformed by it more into the image of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I told a couple of friends I was preaching this morning on Psalm 137, and they said, they assigned you that one? I said, no, actually, I picked it. (laughs) Um, I've had a couple of people, including a couple of members of Clemson, say, are you sure this is a good idea? Um, and I've wondered that myself this week a few times as well. Uh, Psalm 137 is, is one of those passages of Scripture that we'd rather kind of keep up in the attic and not let it downstairs in the living room where it might mingle with the guests, uh, much less put it on the front porch uh, where passersby might see it and hear it and come ask us, what is this all about? And we find ourselves in a difficult place of explaining. But here's my response to that. Uh, What happens when we say that we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work? And then at the same time, there are certain passages of the Bible that we hope to kind of just keep locked up in the attic and not let others give too much attention to them. I think two things happen, among other things. One is that our our children pick up on this, and they quietly wonder if we really believe what we say we believe about the Bible, But secondly, it means that we we insulate our own hearts and our minds from portions of God's word that God has revealed to to make their impress on us, to be used for conforming us to the image of Christ. And to the extent that there are passages of God's word that we want to keep away, uh, we keep ourselves in a state of, of incompleteness or malformity or just being misshapen, less than God intends us to be. So let's bring Psalm 137 down from the attic this morning and let it it speak to us. Let's try to look at it in light of all of God's Word. We won't be able to look at everything, but some of God's Word. And let's open our hearts to its impress to see what what it would call us to this morning. And I have kind of two points, which are two calls from this psalm, and then we'll have something of an extended conclusion this morning. The first is the call to seek first the kingdom of God, as the psalmist does. And the second is the call to expect what God promises as the psalmist does. So let's begin with the first, to seek the call to seek first the kingdom of God as the psalmist does. Now at this time in the psalmist's life, the kingdom of God, which at this time is an earthly kingdom, a national kingdom with a capital city in Jerusalem and an earthly physical temple, appears lost, over, conquered. It's sometime in the years after 586 B.C., the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar have marched on Jerusalem after they had first kidnapped uh, several thousand of the cream of the crop of the Jewish people, including Daniel and his friends, and brought them to Babylon in the years before to begin a program of re-education and to begin assimilating them into Babylonian culture. At least that was their hope. And in 586, the, the siege uh, breaks through the walls of Jerusalem, and they, they, they utterly destroy it. Blood, we have from the records, is flowing down the streets. The, the sacred walls of Jerusalem are pulled down. The temple is defiled. It's, it's, uh, the images of the Babylonian worship are brought into the temple area, and God's holy temple is defiled by these, by these foreigners, and they burn the temple, and they pull down its walls. And this psalmist finds himself what was probably a roughly 900 mile journey uh, as a captive being taken from Babylon, taken from Jerusalem, and brought along the riverways to Babylon. And he's, he's a captive, he's an exile. And the kingdom, before any person's eyes, and in their measure, is, is lost. The Philistines who'd been around since the time of Genesis 21 at least, if not before that, they get, they get caught up in the same Babylonian army and as I've mentioned before, the Philistines never reappear. That's the end of them in the Babylonian exile. That's the normal thing. And so here is a Jewish man, one of these captives, everything he held sacred, everything that mattered to him, everything that spoke of home has been destroyed by these people They have them in captivity, and they say, "Um, we like your songs. They have a nice sound to them. Would you strike up the band and sing us one? Can you imagine how hard that would be to do? Um, Imagine if Gamecock fans gathered in Columbia and came up 26 and then down 85 and marched on Clemson. And they set fire to Memorial Stadium, and they pulled down the whole thing. They killed your coaching staff. They kidnapped your players and your band and some of your best boosters, and brought them back to Columbia where they were confined. And one day they say to them, you know that C-L-E-M-S-O-N thing? It's kind of entertaining. Would you sing it for us? Now you think that sounds extreme, but if anything, it's not extreme enough, because this this Jewish man's actual homeland and history and kingdom and religion has been sacked by these Babylonians, and now they say, sing us one of your songs. And in his heartache, the psalmist composes, I don't know if he sang it here and there, but, but in his response to this request, he sings this psalm. And it has this line: "How shall I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land?" Uh, Laurie and I were texting earlier this week about picking hymns and that kind of thing, and sermon title. And and she said, "You know, I've been I've been thinking that we ourselves are aliens and strangers in this present life, and it can feel hard to sing hymns of praise to God when you realize that you're a stranger and an alien." And it's true. It's 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 hard to sing songs of victory. About Christ, when all around you it seems like Christianity is losing, or it feels like your life is hard pressed. And so, the psalmist is something of a model for us. He holds fast to his love for the kingdom. He says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, the capital city, the symbol of the temple and of the Davidic promises and the dynasty of the kingdom, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, Let my right hand forget its skill. Let my mouth stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. That's a really curious thing about this psalm. It's an imprecatory psalm. It calls down judgment. And it actually has, notice, two imprecations. And the first one is right here in verses 5 and 6. And it's the psalmist praying a, a self Imprecation. If I forget you, O oh Jerusalem, if I do not set Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, above my highest joy, may I be disabled. See, I'd rather be disabled and from that be reminded to set my heart on the kingdom of God above all else with this short life that I have than be able-bodied and set something else above it. Five centuries later, Jesus will say in his Sermon on the Mount, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. To seek something is to to desire that something that is absent from your life become present. Or something that is little in your life become more. And the psalmist is seeking the endurance of the kingdom of God at a moment when it seems lost from sight. And he's seeking that his heart would not be swayed by the Babylonian attempts to intimidate and to re-educate and to tell them we are the super dogs on the block now. Join us or it's over. He seeks first the kingdom of God. And for us, it's a, it's, a, it's a great chastening reminder as we look at Psalm 137, ask ourselves, what is our highest joy? What do we seek most in our life? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. What, what do we tend to put first over the kingdom of God? What is it that we set our hearts and our affections on even more than that? You know, as a parent, it's really hard not to seek first the well-being of your children, not for them to be your greatest priority. And Jesus says it's a good thing. We should love them. No one elevated children more than Jesus. But He says, you've got to love Me and love My kingdom more. More than your family. More than your nation. More than your portfolio. More than your reputation. More than your ambition. More than your studies. More than anything else. What are you most seeking that is absent from your life to be present? If it's the kingdom of God, Paul says in Romans fourteen thirteen that what you're seeking is is the righteousness, joy, and peace of the kingdom of heaven. More of that in your life. I love thy kingdom, Lord, we just sang, for her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, for her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Our psalmist models that in his call to seek first the kingdom of God as he does. And then second, we then come to verses uh, 7, 8, and 9 where we see the call to pray the promises of God as the psalmist does. So we come now to our second imprecation. And the psalmist says, or sings, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, and it's like he hears it, like in in his trauma, he hears them saying, shouting these words about Jerusalem, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Now, the day of Jerusalem refers to that day when the Babylonian armies broke through the walls and whatever remnant of Jews were left in and around Jerusalem, they were either slaughtered or they scattered. And we know from the other narratives, histories, and prophecies of the Old Testament that a great many of them fled to the nearby kingdom of Edom, which was a kingdom of their relatives. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the the brother of Jacob. So they flee everything behind. They're running with memories flashing in their minds of what they just saw the sword doing to neighbors and to relatives. They've got nothing but the shirt on their back and they run to Edom hoping that they might be received. They're naked, that they'd be received and be clothed. They're hungry, they're going to be received and be fed. They're imperiled that they would be received and protected. And instead, the Edomites sold them out. You can read about this in Obadiah. That's what the whole short book of Obadiah is about. Remembering how the Edomites met them at the crossroads on their day of disaster and cut them off. And the ones they didn't cut down, they actually took captive and handed them over to the Babylonians. Can you imagine? And the book of Obadiah makes the point that God, God saw. And God will bring His judgment on the Edomites for how they turned away their brothers in distress. And so the psalmist is saying, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. Now, can I point out what he's not doing? He's not saying in his heart, if I ever get the chance, I am going to get my revenge on the Edomites. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He's actually, in this prayer, putting them squarely in the Lord's hands. You know, when you start to feel squeamish about reading an imprecatory psalm, just remember the alternative. The alternative is escalating cycles of violence and revenge. It's the Hatsfields and the McCoys. It's the Bosnians and the Serbs. It's the Hutus and the Tutsis. It's the Irish Protestants and Catholics. It's the Sunnis and the Shias. It's the never-ending cycle of escalating retaliation. It's Twitter when you get six comments deep. That's what we do when we want to take our own cause into our own hands. And an imprecatory psalm takes your grievance and releases it. It puts it into the Lord's hands and says, Whatever vengeance will be dealt out, the vengeance belongs not to me but to the Lord. It's the only safe place for my grievance to be. Now, in verses 8 to 9, the psalmist continues, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Edom has made herself by her actions one of them. She's a daughter of Babylon. And what is the future of Babylon? Well, the psalmist says, you're doomed to be destroyed. Now, is that a wish projection? Is he he trying to convince the Lord that this would be a good thing to do? It's what he wants? Or is it something that the psalmist actually knows is going to happen? Turn with me to Isaiah 13. And we could also go to Jeremiah 51, but we only have time this morning to look at Isaiah 13. And here we find a prophecy that Isaiah made about 100 to 150 years before this day. And it's a prophecy about Babylon, and it's remarkable for a few reasons. One, in Isaiah's day, the big big dog on the block wasn't Babylon, it was Assyria. So Isaiah has a lot to say about what's going to happen to Assyria. But he's looking down the telescope of history through the supernatural revelation of God to him as a prophet. And he's seeing that Babylon is going to rise on the heels of Assyria. And Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem for her sins as God's method of discipline on his people. But Babylon is not going to do this for the glory of God. They're going to do this out of their own pride. And they're going to desecrate his temple, the Lord's holy place. And though Babylon will be great, Isaiah sees that once they become great, their day is coming too, and this is how it's spoken of, an oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, this is Isaiah 13 verse 1, and then go down to verse 9, behold the day of the Lord comes, That's, that means a day appointed for judgment, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make, de- make a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. All this is referring to Babylon. Whoever is found, verse 15, will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. What is pictured here is a horrible day of judgment on Babylon that is actually a perfect parallel of exactly what Judah, Jerusalem experienced at the hands of the Babylonians. As they have done, it's about to be do- it will be done to them. But the main point, especially in verse 15, about their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes it's not saying the goal will be to inflict emotional pain on you, although that certainly will be, would be experienced. The goal is to emphasize from a standpoint of kingdom strategies that your future will be cut off. That there will come a day of judgment on Babylon, on the other end of which there are no little boys to become soldiers and statesmen, and no little girls to become mothers. Your, 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 your lease on this planet will be completely over as an empire. That's what's really being emphasized here. And how will this come about? Verse 16 is amazing. How are they going to be judged and how are they going to be destroyed? At whose hands? Not at the hands of the Jews. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. Now this is, this is interesting because at the Medes at this time in Isaiah's day were like a nothing kind of kingdom. They were very small, very marginalized. So to imagine that Babylon's going to become great and mighty, but they're going to fall at the hand of the Medes, this is incredible uh, prophetic revelation. I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not, do not delight in gold. In other words, uh, when they come against you, Babylonians, you will not be able to buy them off. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms and the splendor of the pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And then he goes on to describe how on the other end of this judgment, Babylon will be an uninhabited place. The home only to jackals and howling creatures and ostriches, or some translations say owls, and there wild goats will dance. So this is the prophecy. Um, and it's going to come to pass at a time when Babylon is the pride of the world, when its splendor is greater than Paris, greater than London, greater than New York City, and Isaiah is saying it will soon be uninhabited. And who will do this? The Medes. Now, do you ever wonder if the Bible relates to real life? If so, listen to what happened. In 536 B.C., the the Babylonians, uh, still at the the height of their power, um, they were overthrown in a night. The Medes and Persians had a combined army that through a a brilliant military maneuver known to ancient historians and still talked about today, Um, they came and they overtook The citadel, the capital city of Babylon, in one night. Babylon falls. The emperor of the Persians, Cyrus, takes command of Babylon. He releases the Jewish captives, as many of you now know. They go home under Ezra, Nehemiah, they rebuild, and they go on to have a future. Babylon is a place where they're still... Um, it's an active city where the Persians and Medes are governing from. In 518, though, Babylon has proved to be a bit too pesky for the Persian Empire, so they, they utterly destroy it. After that, a, a, a rebuild is attempted, makes some success, but then in the 400s, the Persian king Xerxes lays Babylon completely waste. In the 300s, Alexander the Great, the emperor of the expanding Greek army, he sets his sights on rebuilding Babylon because its fame still lives in lore as a great city. And he died while he was in Babylon having just begun the, the rebuilding project. Something of a mystery of how Alexander the Great died. They think maybe typhoid fever. So the rebuilding stopped and it was never even close to completion. It laid in ruins in the first century before Christ. We have ancient historians who say no one dwells there. The only living creatures that you will find are jackals and owls. In the centuries after Christ, the sands of time so swept over the city of Babylon, Babylon the Great, that it was lost. No one knew where it was. Until the 1800s, when it was rediscovered by archaeologists and and, and very kind of basic elementary archaeological excavations were undertaken. Then a man wanted to make a name for himself and add to his glory by being the man who rebuilt Babylon. He actually put a palace on it, was his foothold of beginning. He started in 1978 and then throughout the 1980s he siphoned millions of dollars of his oil money toward rebuilding the city his name was Saddam Hussein. But it didn't get very far. With the Gulf War, the Americans set up a base right there on the site of Babylon. And after the years of the pounding and vibrations of the tanks rolling in and out and the large helicopters with their thump, 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 thump thump over the city, the archaeologists now say the foundations are so compromised that no one could rebuild the city now even if they wanted to. Babylon doomed to be destroyed. It's, It's an amazing promise and it came true. But here's what I want to emphasize again. Our psalmist was not praying against enemies in general. He's not picking out someone he had a beef with and praying down a curse on them. He's not dreaming of executing this, this, this judgment himself. He was praying a specific prayer prophesied in Isaiah 13, prophesied in Jeremiah 51, that God had promised about a specific people at a specific time. It was biblically based and its horizon was biblically limited and it came to pass just as promised. Alec Moutier the great Old Testament commentator says this, Isaiah, commenting on Isaiah 13, the curse on Babylon in Psalm 137, 8-9 has the Bible as its background. The psalmist prays for what has already been proclaimed concerning Babylon. This is important for us. I think the psalmist is a model for us of, of praying the promises of God, expecting them to pass. There's, there's two, make, two mistakes we can make when we pray. One is to pray earnestly and expectantly for things that God has not promised. C.S. Lewis, when he was eight, nine years old, his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And he prayed earnestly that she would be spared. And she wasn't. She died. And it was one of the things that may have contributed to the the kind of hardening of Lewis's heart toward Christianity and eventually becoming a a full-fledged atheist before then that wonderful ride in a motorcycle sidecar where he became a Christian and one of the greatest Christian defenders of the faith in the 20th century. But we can make the mistake of expecting God to do something that he has not promised to do in his word. If we pray things he has not promised in his word, we need to pray very humbly and very soberly and acknowledge his right to do as he will. But the second mistake we can make is not to expect God to do the things he has promised. And our psalmist really is a model here. In a time when all seems lost, he's walking by faith and not by sight. And he's looking at the specific promises in the Word of God and praying them, and they came to pass. Very simply, Jesus' has promised that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Clemson Presbyterian, that's one of dozens and dozens of prayers in the Bible that you can be praying for the church of Jesus Christ and for yourselves. His promise to be building his church, just as was experienced today through a baptism and new members, let us pray expectantly the promises of God as the psalmist does. So, let us love the kingdom of God as the psalmist does and pray the promises of God as the psalmist does. And I think we can take that, among other things, from this psalm, this most uncomfortable psalm, that when we peel back the layers has some of the deepest comforting truths for believers in it. Now, how to land the plane here? I, I thought of landing it by tracing out how Babylon in the Old Testament is a type of spiritual Babylon in the New Testament especially in Revelation in a way similar that the national Israel in the Old Testament is a type of the church the now global church in the New Testament and just as there was a conflict between national Israel and the territorial empire of Babylon in the Old Testament so there's an ongoing conflict between the church of Jesus Christ and spiritual Babylon and we have this amazing extended image of prophecy in Revelation 18 showing us that this conflict will not last forever. For one day the saints will shout with all the ages in Revelation 18, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And we could have talked about how this doesn't mean that you're calling down judgment on any particular persons at all, but rather it's a prayer of of calling forth the promised judgment on the system and the ways of Babylon while we call for the deliverance and conversion of Babylonians that that they might become like us, ex-Babylonians who have found Life and safety and shelter in Christ. We, we could have gone that way. But, but let me kind of hopefully land at the same airport, but maybe on a different runway uh, this way. By looking at something that's so right in front of us that it would be really easy to miss. So there's a Babylonian, or a few, saying to this Jewish man, hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion. If that Babylonian could have seen this right here, a bunch of people on the other side of the world, 25 centuries later, who are studying this song written by this Jew and whose children only know about Babylon because it's in the Bible stories. Babylon's part of Daniel's story. If he could see this, he'd be shocked, utterly shocked. He'd be shocked to know that his city is no more, as shocked as we would be if you were to hear that one day Paris or London or New York City is going to be so covered by the sands of time that the inhabitants of the world were not, well, they'll know those cities were great one day but in the past, but they, they don't even know where they are anymore. As shocked as we would be by that, he would be that shocked to know the history of, of what, would take, what did take place with Babylon. He'd be shocked to know that this Jewish man and his people were sent back home and rebuilt and have outlived, outlasted the Babylonians. And he'd also wonder, what's going on here? Because these people gathered here this morning at Clemson, they're not descendants of the Jews. At least most of them aren't. I'm not. What is going on here? And the explanation would be, well, you see, there was this ancient promise that was made to the forefather of the Jews, Abraham. For God said, Abraham, come out of the land of Ur and I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a descendants. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who dishonor you, I will curse. That also plays into Psalm 137. And and from your seed will come one who will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Every tribe, nation, and tongue as we later say it in the scriptures. And that that Babylonian would be shocked to understand that a descendant of the people who were captive in Babylon, who was himself also a son of David and then down the line a son of Mary, is the one that people who aren't Jews are now hailing as the great king of kings and saying he has the final judgment of all of humanity and there is grace and salvation found in his name. So that the church today, globally, there's 2.38 billion people in the world who who self-identify as Christians, and most of them do not look like Jesus Christ, nor do most of them look like us. If you were to say, uh, someone said, pick a a random Christian, define their demographic, and if you get it right, I'll give you $10. And if you wanted the $10, your odds would be best if you said, okay, I will pick a poor West African woman that's the church today and that's what came of God's sovereign work of of preparing his people and protecting them through the ages and down the line ultimately to what end to bring forth a messiah who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth that Babylonian would be shocked to hear that I don't know what he would say but the more important question is what do you say The question Jesus put to Peter has gone out to almost every nation in the world now. Who do you say that I am? And let me just end on this personal note. It's great to come down here and and, and to be with you this morning and to spend these hours preparing preparing a message and and to have this role, this calling in this this hour. But at just a deeper level, I'm just a human being of flesh and blood with a few years to live and then I'm going to die and I'm trying to figure out what life is all about. I just want to say personally... I believe this. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe, honestly, with every fiber of my being, that the whole Old Testament was pointing to and waiting for him. And I believe that he's come, that he was born of Mary. I believe that he lived the best life that's ever been lived by far. And I believe that his death on the cross was no succumbing to local powers that got the better of him, but that it, as he said, no one takes my life from me. I have laid it down and I will raise it up. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And that's why I, have, I hope to go to Jerusalem one day, but I've never made a pilgrimage. And if I do go, it won't be a pilgrimage. It won't be to offer sacrifices. It won't be to find a priest. It won't be to do anything that I hope to offer to the Lord on behalf of my sins. No, I, I'm banking my eternal destiny On the promise in this Bible that I can say to God, when you look at me, remember him. I believe that Jesus was given for me, died for me, lives for me. And when I stand before God, I'm going to bank my eternal destiny on that. And I have found peace and joy and hope and endless forgiveness so I can fall down again and find that his love and grace are right there and fresh. His mercies are new every morning. And this life is still hard and I still mess up all the time. But it is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. And I simply want to say to you this morning, who do you say that he is? You know, the Bible kind of presents it as a, a lot of us are standing on the outside of Christ and there's a threshold. And by faith, what we do is we go from being outside of Christ to stepping into Christ and when we step into Christ, it's like stepping into the temple in the Old Testament. You're surrounded by the beautiful perfection of God. You're surrounded by forgiveness and His bloodshed for you and His Holy Spirit indwelling you. And the sense of the Father's love for you and a whole people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who call you their brother, their sister. This is, this is what it is to step into Christ. And so if there are any of you here today who have been standing outside the threshold, thinking about these things, investigating these things, Wondering what you have to give up to step in. I just want to, I just want to say as a, as a man to other people, come into Christ. He's actually calling you to come into Christ. And if you come into Christ, you'll be safe on that day of judgment. You'll be pardoned for every sin. You'll be owned as a child of God. And you'll have a place in His eternal kingdom. And in this life, you will know something truly of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you stood on the outside of Christ today, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. You don't need to find a priest. You don't need to build a spiritual resume of good things you've done, good causes you've given to given your time to you can trust the promise of God that if you trust in Jesus Christ and call on his name, my friend, you will be saved. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for such rich promises that be made to such poor and undeserving people as us. And we thank you for bringing your people Israel through such a marvelous, supernatural governing of their history to bring forth a savior for the world. For those who are physical descendants of Abraham and who trust in Jesus, and for those who are ex-Babylonians like the rest of us, ex-Gentiles trusting in Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's needing to seek first again the kingdom of God, would you help them to see and to love the kingdom of God more than any other good thing? And if there's anyone here who's been thinking about these things but standing outside the door, would they hear your call to step in to the fullness that they could have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.